0: John 16 through 20 today John 16 Uh, and the reason we're going to be in John's gospel is is John is really interesting to me among the gospel writers in part because he's different from the others but in part because he he chronologically wrote it last Uh, Mark is incredibly interesting to me because when he sat down to write his story uh, about Jesus Christ his birth uh, life crucifixion and resurrection when Mark sat down to do that he was creating a genre of literature that had not really previously existed. There were history books at that time. There were books that were created to tell you about the lives of saints and holy people. There were books that were written to give you moral teachings and to give you a way of life. But to have all of them coming together in one that was not intended to tell you a story, but was intended to invite you into a life of living the story out, gospel was a new genre of literature. It had never been written before, and Mark is inventing it while he writes. And what's incredible to me is that Matthew and Mark almost certainly have Mark as Matthew and Ma- Matthew and Luke, Matthew and Luke almost certainly have Mark as one of their sources. And that's not a surprise to us; it doesn't change anything. Luke tells us, "I went and sought out every source I could find to get the best version and the most orderly version of the story that I could give to you." And so Matthew and Luke are taking Mark's story and they're taking other things that they know from people that were there and eyewitnesses and, and their own experiences and they're weaving them together into the story of gospel. And John, sometimes later, uh, sometime later, comes to uh, the t- challenge of writing his gospel and, and likely having some awareness of the other three says, uh, I'm going to do something different from these three. Because you need a different version of the story that highlights different aspects of Jesus and who he is and the kind of Messiah and king that he is, is in the world and what that means for his people in the kingdom. So John is doing something that is uh, different than the others, and he's telling the story in, in ways that are focusing on different aspects of Jesus and who he is and what it means for the world. So he's writing his gospel last of the four. John pays attention to different details, and at times you are reminded that John was one of the disciples who was so close to Jesus. If you'll read the Gospels and you look for the times that Judas, the one who betrays Jesus, comes up, when Judas comes up in the other Gospels, uh, he's just kind of spoken of historically. This is who Judas was and what he did. Uh, When it comes up in John's Gospel, his words that paint Judas as, as just evil and dark and greedy, and you get the sense that it's the kind of way that you would talk about someone who betrayed someone that you loved. John has all of these rich details as the one who was there. I want to get into his last several chapters. And so again, we're starting in John 16, and we're going to be kind of moving through some of this fairly quickly to hit some of the things that he talks about, because it's some of the things that I think are very significant to the story, but at times get overlooked. So John chapter 16 At the beginning of this, Jesus has been praying for some time and talking to his apostles, and we're at the end of a section of of the gospel where Jesus has been giving his final remarks. And if there's one thing that we know from life and history, it's that a person's last words are often given more weight than the words that came before. The last thing they, they said was. And then you say it with some significance that shows that we know that when someone is in their last moments and they're saying, well, what is going to be the last and final words that I give to you, the most important words? And so these chapters of Jesus giving his last words and teachings and prayers to the apostles are given extra weight and significance because he knows what's coming. And on this side of history, we know what's coming his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So Jesus says about these things, he's been saying, all this I've told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you'll remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. There's two things in this that are incredibly important for us today. The first one is is this, that Jesus is telling the apostles, a day is coming soon where those who are going to persecute you are going to do great harm to you, and then they will look to the heavens and to God and say, God, you are welcome that I did this to those people. As one of the details we often miss, we think about the Roman persecution of early Christians as being the most common persecution. But if you actually start reading through the book of Acts, what you see over and over again, it is, it is it's the Jews that are often persecuting the early Christians. And it's because they had an understanding of God that they believed that the followers of Jesus Christ were violating. And they, with good intentions and purest of hearts, went to God and said, God, help us to stop this group of people from teaching things that ought not to be taught and saying things about you that ought not to be said. And so the the Jews began persecuting Christians, and we learn so much about Saul, who later becomes Paul, as one of the early persecutors who would do these things in God's name as he persecuted the followers of Jesus. And I think that we need to be very aware that this is something that we need to be aware of today is that whenever we put ourselves in the place of being the judge and jury of other people who have a heart for God, we run the risk of being in the wrong side of this story. That we can go after good-intentioned, God-following people and be cruel to them, and after we've done so, say to God, God, you're welcome that I was mean to those people who were following you wrongly. We need to be cautious. And the way that we have to always be checking ourselves against that is what Jesus says, those people who are persecuting his followers in God's name will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Knowing God, knowing Jesus is the beginning of making sure that we're in the right side of of these kinds of, of moments. That we're the people who want to y- unite, and we're the people who want to include, and we're the people who want to welcome, and we do so in Jesus' name because that's the kind of stuff that the Father and Son were in the business of doing. And the second thing we need to see in this passage is that Jesus says, uh, You need me to leave. You need me to leave. And we need to hear this today, because I think if I were to ask you the question, would our world be better today if Jesus Christ were right here in this room, in our country, in this world, able to help us deal with all the challenges that, that are confronting us? And I think we would almost all immediately say, yes, Jesus, come back. We need you here, Jesus, right now. And yet Jesus tells his apostles, no, you need me to leave because I'm going to send one who is greater than me, one that you need more than me. I will send the advocate to you. And we know that when he talks about the advocate, that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Holy Spirit is coming, not as a new thing, the Holy Spirit has always existed, but the Holy Spirit is now coming in a different way so that it can live inside of those who are in Jesus Christ. That that's what's going to change, that Jesus has to leave so the Holy Spirit can come and dwell within us. And if we're sitting here today thinking to ourselves, what we really need is Jesus to come back, then we either uh, have not met the Holy Spirit or are not aware of the great benefits that Jesus thinks it has to offer us, that He, the Spirit, will come into us and dwell within us and begin to produce the character of God in us and guide us and give us all that we need to do all that God needs accomplished. See, the apostles are confused by that, but they're on the other side of history. They're being told about something that they've never experienced before. We're on this side of history where we should have an an incredible awareness about the Holy Spirit and the power that the, the Spirit brings in our lives so that if we're confused about it, what's the reason that we have for having not had an experience of God's Spirit in our lives transforming us and making us into who He wants us to be? I think it's good to miss Jesus, but we can't miss Jesus because we take the Holy Spirit for granted. Jump down to verse 33, Jesus tells them, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace and in this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And this is incredibly important, because what you're going to see in the chapters that are going to come is Jesus being arrested, Jesus being betrayed, Jesus being put on trial and trial and trial. He's going to be flogged, He's going to be mocked, He's going to be made fun of, and He will be crucified. And if you were to ask anyone who's in charge in this story... If you were reading the story for the first time, it would be hard to say Jesus clearly has all authority and power, and it's revealed in this story. And yet John is telling us in advance, and he's going to tell us later, Jesus has all the authority and he's already overcome. Don't be confused in the story that you're about to read. Jesus is in charge and will always be in charge. Skip down to chapter 17. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. There's two things that are happening simultaneously in the garden. And there's two things that are happening simultaneously on the cross. And we tend to only focus on one. And it's very important that we're constantly aware of both. And here's what I mean when I say that. Uh, Jesus does in the garden pray, uh, Father, if you can take this cup from me, take this cup away from me. If there's another way to do this, I want to do it another way. Jesus knows the difficulty of the task that's ahead of him, but that does not mean he is unwilling And when he says, Father, your will, not mine, he's revealing so much about how he is wrestling with this. And and as he's wrestling with this, it it does not negate the fact that Jesus' understanding about what's about to happen in the crucifixion and the resurrection is that God's going to be glorified and Jesus is going to be glorified. These are simultaneously true. And we experience this in smaller and more insignificant ways in our lives all the time. Uh, last night I was talking to Leah, and I said, "You know there are so many things about the world that we haven't been able to do this year that I kind of look forward to coming back." And, and one of those was going to activities and events at my kids' school. I complain about having to go to their school and do the little things the dads get to go watch their kids do, uh, almost every time I go to their school to watch them do that. But I miss it. I miss it. I want to be there. I want to be a part of that, just not when I'm on my way. Okay, That's kind of the thing. I simultaneously dread those moments and miss them when I don't experience them. I I have anxiety about them, but I also cherish them. Those are very real things. Now that is like a meaningless example. And yet at the same time, Jesus is experiencing this in the most incredible way, in the most extreme set of circumstances that we can imagine in the garden, knowing that his crucifixion is coming and dreading that it's coming while anticipating that God will be glorified when Jesus is glorified on the cross. It's both true, both dwelling powerfully within him in that moment. And then he knows that he's doing this, that we might receive eternal life. And we always think about eternal life in terms of of time and chronology. We think about eternal life as after we're done with this temporary life, we'll have the one that lasts forever. Think about it in time. It will happen later and it will happen forever. And yet Jesus in this moment says, now what is eternal life? Eternal life is them getting to know God and to know me, to know Jesus. He removes the time description of eternal life, and he puts in there that that what is most important about eternal life is not when it happens or how long it lasts. What is most important about eternal life is that we get to know God and know Jesus. You don't have to wait to receive the blessings that come from salvation in Jesus Christ. You get the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, which gives you insight into the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the Son now, already, for those of you who are already saved yesterday and the day before, for those who get saved in the future the day after that, you know God and you know Jesus and that is eternal life and it's what allows Jesus to have this anticipation of the glory to come in spite of the fact that the crucifixion he knows is going to be terrible. This is all true and it's all very real to Jesus. Down in verse 20, he continues in the text, and and we're jumping around because we don't have time to go through all of this. I hope we have time to go through what I have planned for us. But in verse 20, Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone, talking about those followers that he's had in his life and in his ministry. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message Jesus has this prayer, and it's really for you and me. It's for all of those who will come to believe in Jesus and be his followers as a result of the testimony of his apostles and disciples. And some of them wrote the books that we're reading today, the ones that make up the New Testament. And when we read those and we believe in Jesus, we become the people he's praying about in this prayer. And his prayer is this, that those who will come to believe in him as a result of the testimony of those who have followed him will be so united that the world will say, I believe that God sent Jesus, and I believe that Jesus sent these people, not because their arguments are the best, not because their doctrine is the strongest, because these people love each other. These people work out their stuff. These people come together even when it's not easy to come together. These people take the barriers of the world and they tear them down and they love each other across them. And that's how I know Jesus sent these people. We lament in in the church and in the world so often today, especially in this country, that the world just doesn't believe in God the way that it used to and it doesn't root its, its morality and its faith in Jesus the way that it used to. And if we take Jesus at his word in this prayer and say, Jesus, why has the world stopped believing in the testimony of the church? The echo of this prayer through the centuries is this, you quit loving each other and they quit believing you sent me. So maybe you don't have anything to tell them because they quit listening. How do we undo that? Well, I need better Bible studies. Nope. How do we undo the damage that the divisions within the church have done to our testimony within the world? It's not going to be better sermons. It's not going to be us abstaining from more sin and being very righteous in the way that we hold ourselves in front of of others. Those are good things, and I think we should do those things. But the way that we tell the world that Jesus sent us and God sent Jesus is we learn to love each other. If you go back to Jesus' original statement that we kind of started with this morning, that there's going to be people who are mean to followers of Jesus in the name of God. Don't be that. We need to be the people that in the name of God are united when it seems almost impossible to be united, that we love one another so that, like Jesus says, Jesus says, says, God is you in me and I am in you. May I be in them and they be in you so that we may all be one and the world can believe world needs to see Christians loving each other before they're interested in us loving them. We go to the world and say, we love you, and they say, if that's how you treat your brother and sister, I don't want any part of that. Okay. We're still getting to the good part. Chapter 18, the text Continues, John continues writing, When Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. That's quite a detail, isn't it? Here comes a contingent of soldiers in the middle of night upon a mostly unarmed group of men, tax collectors, fishermen, a rabbi. And when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am he, these soldiers and guards drop back and fall to the ground. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I am the one who overcomes. Jesus is about to get arrested by this crowd that has come up to him in the middle of the night, but do not think that they're in charge. Because when he said, I am he, they fell to the ground, which is generally the response that people have when they encounter an angel, a messenger of God, someone uh, who represents God in, in in a physical way. And they respond in that way because Jesus is the one with the power, even in the moment where he is being betrayed. Jesus is not the victim of this story. He is the one who overcomes. And so again, in verse 7, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. And Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. A lot going on here. A lot going on here. What I want you to see uh, is that as you're, you're reading through the story and you read the part here where Simon pulls a sword and cut off Malchus's ear, uh, the first thing I want you to do is go, What is going on right now? You know, a lot of times we talk about the crazy things Peter does, that he like almost impulsively acts, and then he later has to kind of react against his own reaction, and then he has to learn from it, and there's all of these kinds of moments in the lives of Peter. Uh, We know that he's the one that gets out and walks with Jesus on the water, and he sees the storm and he sinks. We talk about that all the time. We talk about his denial. There's an occasion shortly before this that, that Jesus says, Um, Who do you think I am? And Peter says, I believe that you're uh, the Christ, the one that we've been waiting for. And and, and Jesus eventually says, no, get behind me, Satan. You're not going to tempt me into being an earthly king. I'm going to be a king the way God wants me to be. All of these moments with Peter. One occasion, Peter says, Jesus, I will never abandon you. If you go down, I go down with you. I will not leave you behind. And Jesus says, Peter, I tell you before the rooster crows, you will disown me and deny me three times. Now that does happen. But I don't think Peter gets enough credit for kind of backing up his original claim here. When when this contingent of soldiers comes out, they've got a couple of swords they're really going to for sure lose if this becomes a battle. And Peter draws his sword and says, if this is going down, I'm on Jesus' side. You're not taking my Messiah without a fight. And then he does exactly what you would expect a fisherman with a sword to do, and he misses the guy and hits his ear. And in a weird kind of... I don't know what John is doing here in this moment. John does not include the detail that the other gospel writers do, that Jesus then picks up the ear and he reattaches it to the head, and that Malchus is then part of the group that arrests Jesus uh, with a recently reattached ear. And and, and don't skim over how absolutely unusual this is. This is one of the most bizarre miracles that Jesus performs for, for my money. Uh, that Jesus is doing this is absolutely incredible because Malchus, at this point, when his ear is removed from his body and on the floor, um, the immediate thing that biologically would happen is that he would start to bleed profusely down the side of his head and all over his I mean, it, it, it would have been a mess. Even if Jesus got there pretty quick and replaced the ear, got it back on the head, reattached it, it's, it's messy. The mess doesn't go away. And can you imagine when Malchus got back to his house later that evening and, and his family says, Malchus, what happened to the side of your head? And he said, uh, one of Jesus' followers cut off my ear. So what, what are you talking Your ear looks fine. Well, Jesus put it back on. What? He, it, it, Jesus put it back on. But you're a mess. Well, I mean, I, it's, it's all better now. It's just messy. Well, then what did you do? We arrested him you arrested the guy that put your ear back on your head and clearly has God on his that's who you that's Malchus's story John does include a really unusual detail that later one of Peter's three denials is going to come when one of Malchus's relatives asks him hey are you one of the ones that was with Jesus in the garden and he just throws in this detail And this person was related to Malchus, the one whose ear Peter cut off in the garden before Jesus reattached it. We just get to know that. I don't know why we get to know that. My guess is that these people became significant to the later church. And he's saying, you know Malchus over there. This is what happened to him and how he came to know Jesus. But that's speculation. I don't know it. And then Caiaphas, the high priest, makes a statement in verse 14. After all of this has happened and Jesus is now brought before the high priest in the middle of the night in a trial that is not legitimate, Caiaphas is the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Have you ever thought about how unusual that statement is? Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, the ruler of the Sanhedrin, who benefits from the status quo, he has the power and authority that he wants. He has the the influence that he wants in Jerusalem and in the temple. And and this Jesus rabbi, this Jesus fellow, is a real challenge to his authority and the benefits that he's getting to enjoy as the leader of the, the temple. And he's worried listen rome is really pretty good with us right now rome doesn't cause any problems for us right now in fact i'm doing pretty well under roman rule now do the people of israel do the jewish people want to stay under roman rule no but does caiaphas it sure looks like it he's benefiting from the current arrangement and he says to those who are other leaders who are also benefiting from the current arrangement hey, listen, guys, it's better for this one man to die than for all the people to be risked if he starts a revolt or a revolution. We are better off letting this guy suffer so that we can maintain our position of influence in the current status quo. Yet what he says is it's better for one man to die to save all the people. That is true. That's the entire plan of salvation in a single sentence. Caiaphas is, while he thinks, betraying Jesus and turning Jesus over so that Jesus can be killed, so that he can maintain his power. What in fact is happening is that Jesus is being with all authority as the one who overcomes, going to the cross to be crucified so that he could be resurrected, so that all status quo and all illegitimate power can be dethroned. Everything Caiaphas thought he knew was upside down, and he still was able out of his mouth to say the one thing that was most true. Dallas Willard writes a book on hearing God where he says, Listen, even if God gives you the most true statement in the world and you hear God's words as clear as anything, who's to say you'll understand what they mean? I can give you instructions w- with my words that are easily audible to you, and you can misunderstand them and misbehave according to my desire for you, even if you hear me clearly. Caiaphas appears to have heard God quite clearly, that his desire is that one man would die so that all might be saved. What he didn't do is understand at all what that meant. And we need to make sure that we don't come to Jesus Christ in the resurrection with the same wrong ideas that Caiaphas has. That we need Jesus out of the way so that I can restore myself to power and influence and honor. That it's about a reversal of fortunes, that the poor might be lifted up, that the mighty might be brought down. The very things that his mother Mary sang about in the days after his conception and the time after his birth. which She remembered that Jesus would change the way that power and honor work. And then Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came to the world is to testify the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate? With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. The people had a choice between Jesus and Barabbas. The name A couple weeks ago, we had someone in a story that was Bar Timaeus, which means son of Timaeus. Barabbas means son of Abba, son of the father. People literally in this moment have a choice between the son of Abba father and a man whose name is son of the father. Isn't that an unusual thing? a choice between someone who who makes this claim in their own name and someone who makes this claim in, in saying, I am from God and I come to you from God and I make it evident to you in the things that I've done and the things that I say, now it's time you choose. This guy who's actually a revolutionary and a rebel and who started an uprising, or the man Jesus who never did anything like that and is being accused of exactly that, of being an insurrectionist and one who is trying to raise up the people against Caesar, the Jewish leaders were trying to paint Jesus as the rebel while Barabbas actually was one. But The crowd chooses Barabbas and Jesus headed toward the cross while the rebel was set free. Chapter 19, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. And once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And I want you to see that as we move through this story, Pilate is becoming more and more convinced that this Jesus might be everything that they're accusing him of being. And that he might be everything that Jesus has claimed and yet silently not claimed that he might be. Pilate is afraid of Jesus. Who has authority in this room? Jesus. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered chief priest who told the people and led them into prayers, asking that Messiah, the king who would sit on the throne of David, would come and deliver them. The chief priest who said, God will deliver us from Caesar. The chief priest who now rejected the very Son of God who had come to answer those prayers they had led the people in praying, now declared to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Isn't Yahweh, God, your king? Caesar. Isn't this Messiah, Jesus, your king? We choose Caesar. If that means we can choose our own power and the status quo and get rid of this guy that's threatening all of it. Every interaction that Pilate has with Jesus, he becomes more and more impressed with him. He doesn't find him guilty. He becomes afraid of him. He does everything he can to release him. And Jesus even tells him, you have no power over me. And it's at that point that Pilate starts calling him in all of his interactions, the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, but the chief priests, the ones who should have crowned Jesus Messiah and king just days before when Jesus rode into the temple. Now yell, we have no king but Caesar. And Jesus is then turned over to be crucified. But Easter isn't about the crucifixion. So then in chapter 20 and verse 11, we read that Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look at the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? "'They've taken my Lord away,' she said, "'and I don't know where they've put him.' And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, "'Woman, why are you crying? "'Who is it you are looking for?' Thinking he was the gardener, she said, "'Sir, if you have carried him away, "'tell me where you've put him. "'I will get him.' And Jesus said to her, "'Mary.' And she turned around toward him and cried out in Aramaic, "Rabbi," which means teacher. And Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary The first to get to proclaim the message of the resurrection, the message of Easter, that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, that he is resurrected and that he is going to our God and our Father. And that as a result of that, that we are invited to join him in eternal life, which means knowing God and knowing Jesus. John, in the way he weaves this whole story together, is making it clear that the resurrection means that Jesus was glorified so that God could be glorified. That Jesus went to the Father so that the Spirit could come into those who believe in Him and who follow Him. The resurrection means that the Spirit would unite those very followers into a group whose love for one another would prove to the world that Jesus sent us and God sent Jesus through our unity. The resurrection makes clear that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and we are the followers of He who overcomes. We are not little people. We are more than conquerors. The resurrection shows us that Caiaphas, while trying to kill and end Jesus and his ministry, was exactly right without his own knowledge that it was best for one man to die so that all people might be saved. Resurrection shows us that Pilate was right when he said that Jesus was the king of the Jews, and he wrote in all the languages of the common world at that time so that all would know that the king of the Jews was on that cross. But he intended as a mockery either to Jesus or the chief priest, or maybe in some way both, became a proclamation of what was actually true and what was actually happening in that very moment. And not only king of the Jews, but king of kings and Lord of Lords. The Resurrection means that those who desire power and the status quo will always try to reject the Resurrection. They will always choose Caesar or whoever else has the most worldly power instead of Jesus. Jesus calls us to a different way. The Resurrection tells us that those who listened to the testimony and message of Mary Magdalene on that Easter morning 2,000 years ago can receive the gift of eternal life that is, to know God and to know Christ. This morning, we continue to celebrate today what we as Christians celebrate with every day of our lives that Jesus got out of the grave because there is no death for those who are in him. And he showed us that if we will simply be his people, that we become the people of the resurrection and we begin bringing the kind of realities that the resurrection hints of and declares boldly into the world today. The world needs to see the people of the resurrection living differently than the world so that they might come to believe that Jesus Christ has something they need to. If you're here today and you're listening to this message and what you are just aware of is that you need to be in Jesus Christ so that you can receive eternal life, the Bible tells us that all you have to do is believe and be baptized and you can be saved. That baptism places you into Christ's death and then into his resurrection. The resurrection people have the greatest hope for the world today and forever. And if you need to be part of that group of people, please come forward this morning as we stand and worship together.